Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to redeem a radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. As you may have heard on recent episodes of Church Life Today, Ignatius Press just released a new volume called The Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. I am the editor of that volume for which seven other scholars in theology, literature, and the arts joined me to write contemplative, spiritual essays on Lewis's chronicles. We also brought in the original illustrations of an incredible visual artist and an original poem cycle from a remarkable poet. The idea of the Chronicles of Transformation is to help adult and young adult readers to rediscover or maybe discover for the first time the joy of entering into Narnia, except this time to be even more mindful about the deep and abiding moral and spiritual transformation that can take place there for those of us who dare to become childlike. In previous weeks, we've shared interviews with some of the contributors to that volume, and maybe we'll have some more contributors join us soon. But today, we want to bring back an interview that was not explicitly about Lewis or his chronicles, though it had everything to do with the enduring value of children's literature for children and for adults. This interview with the Reverend Dr. Daniel McLean first aired in 2019 after he gave a lecture at Notre Dame on just this topic. I hope you enjoy it, and I also hope you will check out our volume on the Chronicles of Transformation. The Reverend Dr. Daniel McLean is a theologian and priest in the Episcopal Church and serves as the Episcopal Chaplain at the College of William and Mary. He earned his Ph.D. in Historical and Systematic Theology from the Catholic University of America, then taught at Loyola University, Maryland from 2012 to 2017, where he launched and administered Loyola's Master of Theological Studies program. Dr. McLean specializes in theology and literature and is co-author of Reading Scripture as a Political Act. He is currently at work on a book entitled Theology and Children's Literature, an Introduction, forthcoming from Cascade Books, an imprint of Whippenstock. In 2019, he taught a week-long track at our Institute's Liturgy and the Domestic Church Gathering, where he focused on forming the sacramental imagination of the child through literature. Dan McLean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've done a lot of work on the importance of literature informing the imagination, especially in light of your forthcoming book on children's literature. I just want to start by asking you, where did this interest in children's literature arise? I think probably like anybody who was once a child, you know, you— You, <laughs> you too, you, huh? Yeah, me too. <laughs> How about that? Much to my children's surprise, and I think usually disbelief. That's right. 
I just had a rich, imaginative, and literary childhood. Hmm. And it took a new shape when I was a teenager. We moved from the desert in Southern California to Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, my. And all the kids in Montgomery thought that I, I grew up on the beach. Yeah. You know, you must be a surfer. They it is a beach me. without an ocean. The it, desert right. in California. It's I've been there. Like, right. yeah. 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 It's just sort of an ocean of sand. That's right. And with the occasional tumbleweed. <laughs> I loved it. I had a great childhood in the uh-huh. desert. But as a teenager in Montgomery, Alabama, and I, we were only there for a year and a half, I felt pretty isolated. Mm-hmm. And those ended up being, that ended up being a really formative year for me, both because I learned how to play the guitar that year. And I also discovered the joy and the freedom of writing to a used bookstore. Hmm. And I discovered Tolkien that year. I discovered, in a new and fresh way, the Narnia series by Lewis. And I really sort of took ownership of my life as a reader Hmm. in that time. And so it it was both an encounter, sort of an encounter afresh with what we would today think of as as children or, or YA literature, young adult literature, but for me, it was a it was a step towards, like I said, sort of owning my own imaginative life. Yeah, uh, both through the creative work of music as well as as the creative imagination of reading. Yeah, and you were a young teen. At yeah, that I was point? fourteen and fifteen. Fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. So prior to that, I mean, did in your household was it kind of like a, a literary culture in your household? Was there? There like, was. I okay. mean, I always remember my mom reading to me as a young child. I remember having favorite books that I would ask her to read to me. Do you remember the, which ones they were? The the one that I remember really distinctly was a like a board book, like a picture board uh-huh. book, uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Yeah. I don't know The why. plot develop. I mean, it's he, stunning. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, marginalized characters, <laughs> divine intervention, uh-huh. sort of preternatural or supernatural <laughs> abilities. You know, Rudolph is sort of a proto-superhero. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's the next Avenger. I mean, we're just waiting The for next it. Avenger, yeah, that's, that's right. It. Guiding the sleigh through, that's right. through, the, through the, the fog of modernity. Oppression. <laughs> yeah, of modernity. Oppression, yeah. And I, I remember Beverly Cleary pretty mm-hmm. pretty fondly. Eventually, I I don't know who introduced them to me, but the the comics of Bill Watterson, the yeah. Calvin and Hobbes series, yeah. I I collected all of those that I could. And then eventually, I discovered I discovered other authors that you know, sort of appealed to my imagination. I think I'm, when we moved to Montgomery, I already had a a kind of an affinity for for fantasy or sci fi, and. Probably the fact that my dad was a, a fighter pilot fed into that to some extent. Oh, seriously? Yeah. yeah, you know, so he made model rockets and yeah. and model airplanes, and we were always out on these dry lake beds, like, firing things into the air. And um, It's like every boy's dream. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And now that I recall, uh, in the wake, I think in the wake of the, the Challenger explosion— mm. The Boy Scouts started this new initiative, I think, in cooperation with NASA called Young Astronauts. Mm-hmm. One of the charter groups was in my was in my hometown at this observatory that was built at the elementary school, and so I was part of that group too. So, whereas some kids might have taken that into like a love of engineering or astronomy, uh, for me, it just it just fed into this sort of imaginative world that I was creating, yeah. wanting to be creative wanting to experience other people's creativity. Yeah. When I got to college, I, I continued to read. I continued to look for books. I continued to try and actually model my adult life on kind of visions of life that I had from from being a teenager mm-hmm. and from reading reading these things. And Any, yeah. any kind of visual landscapes that were— especially operative for you? There was this book series that I read as a young teenager about an archaeologist who gets pulled back into a kind of an alternative Celtic England. Oh. (laughs) 
And I haven't read that one. Yeah, well, it's yeah. <laughs> uh, it by an author named Stephen Lawhead, okay. um, who is, he has kind of uh, loose connections with evangelical Christianity. In college, I used to go to this big uh, festival called Cornerstone Festival out in the cornfields of Bushnell, Illinois. <sighs> And it was like rock concerts in the evening, but in the morning, it would be workshops yeah. with authors like Stephen Lawhead. Yeah. There was an organization that named themselves after the fantasy classic, the Phantom Tollbooth. Uh-huh. And they would help kind of host these kind of creative workshops, you know, where you'd get to ask your favorite authors these sorts of questions. You people who are like deeply inspired by Madeline Engel, Francis Buechner, that kind of vibe. Right. And that was really my community at the time. You know, people, kind of generous evangelicals associated with places like Wheaton College. Right. So because of reading this series, I got it in my head that I was going to be an archaeologist. Sure. You know, and in fact, I would do I would do British history. This was yeah. the thing I was going to do. And yeah. So I started college as a history major. Yeah. And didn't become an archaeologist and ended up switching into the philosophy major, but but continued to sort of pursue the the creative angle. I was in a department that was very analytic, and so I learned how to do philosophy through that analytic lens. And when I discovered that people like William Alston were writing about religious experience through aesthetics, mm-hmm. that was the direction I went, and I sort of threw myself headlong yeah, into yeah. that. Yeah. So I wasn't going to write the creative stuff. I, I continued to write and play music and play in rock bands in college. That's because that's what you do in college, right? But I— I didn't because I don't have the talent, but I— uh, for those Did who you do. go to rock concerts? A little bit. Okay, yeah. all right. But I, I knew that sort of academically, vocationally, mm-hmm. what I wanted to do was understand that creative angle and how it, how it fit into the life of discipleship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that kind of how this turn came from a lover of somebody who was formed in mm-hmm. you know, sort of this literature to somebody who now studies it and is trying to think about how we form other people through literature? Yeah, it, it was really inchoate for a long time. Uh-huh. You know, I left college at 22, and I studied aesthetics in my master's degree, but I, I turned away from literature, and I really was looking more at visual phenomena. I was looking at music. I was thinking about how things like architecture shape mm-hmm. our perception and experience of environments, and literature just became a, a kind of a side hobby. Yeah. And I was in love with books, and I kept reading books, And it was the year I started my PhD that my very first conference paper was an engagement with, actually my second conference paper was an engagement with Martin Buber's I, Thou, Mm -hmm. and a book called Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange by Susanna Clark, I believe. And looking at the way she treats magic in that book and the, the relationship of magic to the environment, to nature, in contrast to Buber, who sort of flatly denounces magic as this you know, attempt to manipulate. Mm-hmm. And so looking at magic through the lens of fantasy, not believing in magic, but like looking at magic as a literary device, yeah. right? Or a literary context yeah. for relationship, not manipulation. Yeah. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with the Reverend Dr. Dan McLean, Episcopal chaplain at the College of William and Mary and author of the forthcoming book, Theology and Children's Literature. How have you come to see literature as environmental, creating an environment for the emergence, the development of the imagination? It was entirely an accident. I was teaching a writing course at George Washington University called The Politics of Religion. Yeah. And it was, I think, a Thursday evening, and I said to my students, who's going to the movies this weekend? And 
this was the weekend that the final Harry Potter movie was coming uh, out, and I had tickets to go see it, I think, that night or the next you're night. You're dating this example, by the way, because people are still going to the movies instead of having the movie come to them oh, immediately. right, right, right yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. So this would have been maybe the fall of 2010. Yeah, I fact. mean, it's like ancient yeah. history at this Yeah, that's point, right. right, almost a decade ago. Uh-huh. Uh, some readers or some listeners weren't even born at that point. Okay. I'm um, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but my students were, you know, I don't know why they were so surprised, but they were like, Professor McLean, you're, you're going to go see Harry Potter? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course. I've been going to every opening night for the Harry Potter series since the second movie. Did you dress up? No. Okay. No. Thank you, though. Well, I mean, um, <laughs> people are wondering, so I had people to are ask. Wondering, yeah. That's my uh, Right. So I, I, I said, well, why don't you go to the go see it and let's come back on Monday and and we'll talk about it. Uh-huh. And what we ended up finding, you know, have these great lines where Voldemort, after he kills Harry, he says, you know, silly girl, you don't believe in him anymore. You believe in me now. Hmm. And it was that relationship of belief as a really as a properly theological category and the kind of the political moment of that scene and bringing those two together. The students and I discovered that things like the Harry Potter series had this deep relevance and resonance with the work that we were doing in that class. And the students prevailed upon me over the rest of the semester to petition the, the writing department at GW to offer a class on Harry Potter. And it hmm. turned out that they had already offered that to a friend of mine, but she had turned them down. And so they were very willing for me to teach this class. And what I discovered in the process of teaching that class over two semesters and then teaching a similar class at Loyola is that there's competing notions of formation inherent in the genre of children's literature. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Harry Potter series progresses through the development of these children in school. And in a lot of ways, I think Rowling anticipated the development of her readers as they read along with the series. Mm. And so that's already the context, right? Formation Mm-hmm. is already saturated or saturating the genre of children's literature. Yeah. And I and I discovered that entirely by accident. Yeah. And that's worthy of now let's try and understand it and see. Right. Okay. Right. So there are compete you just said there are competing notions of formation in children's literature. Yeah. Now you've I know you've uh, spoken on done some work on say atheism and literature right. and children's literature. Right. You were at the, you know, 2019 liturgy symposium on the liturgy in the domestic church doing the sacramental formation. Right. Uh, specifically through children's literature. So these are competing notions, in so, or, or they might appeal yeah. to a p- competing notions. Can you help us to understand, like, what are these competing notions of formation? Well, if we back up a second, yeah. I think even more basic than atheism and religious belief, right. these authors are coming to the task of writing children's literature, and readers are coming to the task of reading it with certain assumptions about what the genre is good for. Okay. This goes all the way back to the origins of the genre. You have a book like Peter Pan, which I talked about this week, which encodes to some extent the Victorian assumptions about children as sort of inherently innocent, children as blank slates, Mm -hmm. children as sort of incompletely human. And we need to give them the kind of the tools and the the content of their formation. Mm-hmm. And that author, J.M. Barry, is trying to undercut that Victorian assumption mm-hmm. about the innocence of the child and the the formation of the child. Mm-hmm. So you have Mrs. Darling as the sort of typical Victorian mother. She comes into the children's room. She organizes their minds yeah. like the way she would organize their right. room after right, they're right, asleep. Right, right, right. And then and then Peter, this force of nature, shows up and you know, <laughs> doesn't just kidnap the children but unsettles the entire formational program. Hmm. And what Barry, I think, is trying to do, maybe unconsciously, is mimic or imitate or reflect back to the genre what the genre thinks it's good for 
it's there to form children. It's a kind of approving literature. And G.K. Chesterton was all over this. He, he was completely scandalized by this idea that what we do is we give our children really anodized sort of cultural approved literature that's going to shape them almost in a mechanistic way. Mm-hmm. One of the big debates he has, and you can read this in an essay he wrote called The Red Angel, is with sort of cultural censors who think that what we need to do as adults is protect our innocent tabula rasa children from things like monsters mm-hmm. in literature. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, the, the, the literature doesn't tell the child that the monster exists. The literature tells the child that the monster can be defeated. Yeah. Teaches them how to deal with the monsters yeah. that are there. Yeah. So there's a on a psychological level, there's a there's a sense that like what we can do through literature like this is give children coping mechanisms. Mm. I think it goes even deeper. I've been very fascinated by the television show Stranger Things over the last couple of years. One of my arguments, if you will, or my kind of hunches about about the show, especially the first season, is that it's juxtaposing a virtue and a vice. Each episode. Uh, the season. The season. The oh, the season. season as a yeah. whole. Got it. So the first season, you know, you get this this monster that's its its head is all mouth. Mm. It's the vice of gluttony. Mm. It's all consuming, and then you see that gluttony or that consumption, mm. that approach, you know, the consumer approach to the world reflected in characters like Steve, who just wants Nancy because he wants to consume her. Mm-hmm. That's contrasted with the virtue of friendship. You have these friends lose their friend, and they devote all of the resources of their sort of little cadre of friendship to helping rescue their friend, to dealing with this situation, to defeating the monster, right, to use Chesterton's language. And they haven't been tested. Their friendship hasn't been tested in this way, but they've been practicing all along by playing Dungeons & Dragons, right? They have kind of a code of honor, right? There's moments where, like, there's a a violation of the code of honor, and— one of the guys checks the other guy, like, no, you know that this isn't how we behave. Yeah. Right? There's no integrity in what in what's happened here. And we need to reconcile now. Mm. Right? Or we don't leave anybody behind. Mm. Right? Or the one sacrifices for the good of the others. Yeah. And so there's this virtue of friendship, you know, broadly conceived. And that's what defeats the monster at the end of the series. Right? They bring Eleven, right, the, the young woman, they bring her into the friends, I mean, of course, there's this struggle, should she be accepted or not? But then she is accepted. She's brought into the band of friends, and she sacrifices herself at the end as an act of friendship mm. to defeat this vice. Mm. And so I think that's one of the things that I'm after, not just reducing children's literature to the, the moral. A big part of what I do is compare rules of reading, rules of reading scripture as like Augustine teaches in On Christian Doctrine. Yeah with the way that children inherently or innately read this children's literature, I don't want to reduce it just to the moral sense of the text. I want to blow that apart and show that there's multiple senses of the text operative at any given time. Just like in Scripture, you have the literal sense, the allegorical sense, the moral sense, and the anagogical sense. And so trying to open up children's literature to these different readings, what it does is it not only teaches us virtue, but it also expands the imaginative framework that we have for inhabiting the world, for assimilating literature or art or creativity. But then we can return to Scripture with this kind of emboldened sense of reading and receive scripture in a fuller sense than, than maybe we're inclined to do. Yeah. 
You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with the Reverend Dr. Dan McLean, Episcopal Chaplain at the College of William and Mary, and author of the forthcoming book, Theology and Children's Literature. And that example you're just giving from Stranger Things, kind of zeroing in on the Dungeons and Dragons part of that, because mm-hmm. it seems like, mm-hmm. in some ways, that's the literature that was yeah. forming them, right? Like it's, right. And to your point, some might want to consider a game like that, or books, like, is this the right type of book? To read, like, what's the banned book list? What's the good book list? But you were saying, like, there's a way in which they were being formed, perhaps even unawares, that then it taught them how to deal with the real world. So, are we asking the wrong questions when we ask, like, what are the strictly the right books and what are strictly the wrong books? Like, how do we decide on books for our children to read to them and that they read themselves? I'm glad that you asked this because I got that exact same question yesterday in the Q&A time Mm -hmm. of my workshop. Let's go back to to Dungeons & Dragons for a second. I grew up in an evangelical context where Dungeons & Dragons was considered considered sort of inherently demonic. We don't don't do this. Why don't we do it? For the same reasons that the Victorians didn't want their children to read monster tales. Because it normalizes something scary or like witchcraft. I think about the Harry Potter debates. Mm -hmm. But what is when we break Dungeons and Dragons down into into its actionable parts, right? What's the work that it's doing, and what's the work that the players are doing? They're telling a story. They're inhabiting a world together, and they're playing roles. Mm-hmm. So it's play and it's storytelling. And this is what Jesus is doing when he tells the parables, right? Right. He's telling a story, and he's asking the disciples, the Pharisees, anybody in the audience, to inhabit those roles for themselves. Who am I in this story? Yeah. Right? Right. So, yeah, Dungeons & Dragons involves elements that might be questionable to, to, to some Christians. But if we employ this expanded framework for reading, right, where there's, yeah, there's a literal sense, but there's also figural senses or spiritual senses, to use the classic term, then I think we're able to accommodate those elements as fantastical. We don't have to see something like Dungeons & Dragons or Harry Potter as advocating Right, witchcraft as as satanic in Harry Potter. What is what is witchcraft? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a skill that you learn in school, mm-hmm. right? Does does J.K. Rowling think that witches really exist? Do her readers need to accept the premise that witches really exist in order to enjoy those books? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So that to come back to your question yeah. now, are there right books and are there wrong books? If you take me seriously, that the way that a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, needs to be open to Scripture is through multiple senses of the text, then that's a skill that's acquired over a lifetime of discipleship. And it's not necessarily indexable to ages or to stages in life, right? Like teenagers are ready for this kind of reading. Young adults are ready for this kind of reading. Rather, I think it's highly particular to where you are in your life of following Jesus, Mm -hmm. to where you are in your engagement with the Holy Spirit through the sacraments and uh, through life in the church and sort of becoming part of the the body of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. Where are you in respect to the kingdom of God? Jesus's audience, they were predominantly adults. I don't know, maybe there was a whole like band of children following him. (laughs) But regardless, right, whatever the age of the people, people of the same age were in dramatically different places in their ability to read the stories or to interpret the stories he was telling them. And they all had to allow themselves to enter into the stories, right? right. Like, so it's in that sense, like the children's literature, which might seem like a phase, like you mm-hmm. go through children's literature. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's actually something that even adults have to return to, the, the willingness to return to childlike wonder, 
Yeah. Which is maybe the thing that gets bred out of us. We, we forget how to enjoy a story. And this is where catechetical programs mm-hmm. like Good Shepherd or in, in my church, uh, Godly Play, mm-hmm. m- you know, Montessori discovery-based programs are so vital. They foster wondering. I'm a storyteller in Godly Play, and asking the wondering questions after a story is such a vital part, not just of the formation of the children I work with, but also of my own, my own formation. You know, I come to these stories and I want children to have the right interpretation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and the the that catechetical model blocks me from doing it. I tell the story of the Good Samaritan or the Good Shepherd, and I don't say, okay, now let me tell you the right interpretation of this story, right. which notice Jesus hardly ever did. Right. But rather I, I say, gosh, I wonder what your favorite part of that story was. Hmm. I wonder where you are in that story. Hmm. I wonder how this story would be different if all the characters were children. Mm. And watching the room light up when I ask those questions. Of children. Right, of children. So as a preacher, I've tried to bring that approach into into my homilies. You know, if if it's Pentecost and we're talking about the Holy Spirit calling and giving gifts, I might say, I wonder how the Holy Spirit calls you. I wonder how the Holy Spirit has empowered you with gifts. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you asked yourself these questions? Mm-hmm. So trying to trying to reintroduce wonder into the formation of adults. And sometimes it might be as easy as children's literature, right? I mean, Amazon created an entire category of children's literature for the Harry Potter series, but it was a bestseller amongst adults. Yeah, right. right. So that tells us something. Right. So it might be as easy as reintroducing so-called children's literature. Yeah. Is there a larger issue here in terms of the loss of a reading culture? Does all of this necessitate the rediscovery culturally in our homes, in our schools, that we actually give our children, give ourselves over to reading again in ways that perhaps we haven't been in the last decade, couple decades? Well, I want to come back to to storytelling. I think even prior to reading... We need to become a storytelling culture again. We need to support families in telling their own stories. We need to reintroduce storytelling into the educational craft. Mm-hmm. We need to tell stories with our friends. And we need to see that as an essential part of not only formation, but of community, of mm-hmm. the family. I mentioned Godly Play a minute ago. The yeah. priest who developed the Godly Play catechetical model is a guy named Jerome Berryman. And in a number of his books, but especially his most recent book, uh, which is called Stories of God at Home, he talks about being a chaplain at the Houston Medical Center in their children's programs. And one of his areas of responsibility was the suicide watch. Hmm. And he and the researchers and the doctors who were working there discovered that the children who were on suicide watch predominantly came from families that did not have a storytelling culture. Wow. So we think about, it's not just about coping, right? It's not just about being able to cope with difficult situations. It's about being able to envision your place in the world, your significance in the world, being able to understand yourself as, I guess, existentially, right? Being able to make meaning. So recovering that storytelling, I think, is essential even more essential than sort of becoming a reading culture. There's, of course, debates about the role of technology and social mm-hmm. media and, mm-hmm. and all that. But these, these things, social media can, can be a tool that we use for storytelling. 
it requires, it would seem, engagement, though. Like, you can't outsource your storytelling no, responsibility right. and capacity, right? That's right. So, okay. Yeah. So we're coming to the end here. So maybe if just briefly, if you could tell us a little bit about Theology and Children's Literature, the book you're working on, that'll come out from Withenstock, the Cascade imprint. Right. What can people expect to find in that book? Well, I'll, I'll sort of pull back the curtain yeah. here. My primary audience that I envision for that book is parents. Okay. What I want to do is embolden parents, especially you know Christian parents, to lose some of the anxiety they have about their children's formation. I encounter so many parents that say, you know, my child was an acolyte, or you know, my child got confirmed, but mm-hmm. then they then they stopped going to right. church and. It used to be that, that that would happen. Children would, like, you know, they'd grow up, they'd leave. But when they had children, they'd come back. Right. But we're, we're not there anymore. Children are looking at their parents, and they're seeing that faith wasn't meaningful to them as a child. So why should it be meaningful to me? Mm-hmm. So I want to I help parents reclaim some of that meaningfulness, not by having the right, you know, doctrinal answers for their children when they ask tough questions, but to affirm the tough questions that their children ask, you know, where does God live? You know, does, does God have a body? Is our dog with God? Mm-hmm. You know, so these sort of very basic questions that children ask, to not feel the pressure to have the right answer or say, oh, well, I don't know, you should ask the priest. But to say to their kids, that's a really good question. Yeah. I wonder what you think yeah. about that. Yeah. And, to, and to be comfortable with the tension of, of maybe not knowing or the tension of releasing that back to the child because children love to be asked what they think. Yeah. They love to be treated as having some kind of knowledge about this. And, and children do, yeah. they do have knowledge. I think that that kind of engagement can't primarily begin with scripture first. Mm-hmm. I think parents need to be eased into it with something like children's literature. Mm-hmm. And so the task of my book is to, to try and foster households where parents and children sit down together, they read books together, and they retell the stories that they're reading. And the parents, the, the first thing out of their mouth is, wow, I wonder what you liked about that story. Oh, uh, how good. Right. How good. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. You're welcome. It's been, it's been, a been great my pleasure. Yeah. You've been listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We were joined by Dr. Dan McLean. Thank you to all of you for joining us, and we look forward to being with you next time. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com. Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years, and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code REDEEMER. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God.